0: This is a Scream Queen production. So that I'm your host, Jen Carpenter. Happy True Crime Tuesday, everybody. So I've been doing a lot of close to home cases lately, if you guys haven't noticed, and that actually is going to continue today. Because what is closer to home than a crime that occurred at your very own high school? Well, one of your high schools. I went to two. In Lansing, Michigan, obviously, Where I grew up, there are three public high schools. There's Eastern, which, as you might imagine, is on the east side of the city, Sexton, which is on the west side, and Everett, which is on the south side. What about the north side, you ask? Those jokers just didn't go to school. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. South side girl here, so I got to give you guys a hard time. Um, North side, that was kind of split between Sexton and Eastern. Um, I started out at Sexton, even though I lived in Everett's district, most of the kids that I was hanging around with by the end of eighth grade, you know, they were going to Sexton in the fall and I wanted to be where the people were. So I went to Sexton for a couple of years, found myself getting into a little bit more trouble than was good for me. So I transferred to Everett halfway through my sophomore year, got into more trouble there, and failed to attend my classes at Everett as much as I should so that I could go and visit my friends back at Sexton. Um, So a couple weeks into my junior year, I transferred back to Sexton, where I somehow managed to graduate in 1998. And even though, you know, there were incidents on occasion at both schools, you know, scary or violent incidences, I felt relatively safe. Most of the time, for the most part, there was, you know, a couple couple real scary things, but for the most part, it was a, a pretty safe environment despite the reputation that the schools tend to have in the public. However, Michigan as a whole has a particularly dark history when it comes to school violence. Uh, Michigan is home, as we all know, to the worst school massacre in American history, uh, the Bath School Bombing which Danny talked about that way back in one of our very first episodes, maybe like episode five. Michigan is also home to the youngest school shooter in American history, a six-year-old boy, six-year-old boy, who shot and killed a six-year-old girl in 2000 at Buell Elementary School in Mount Morris, which is a suburb of Flint. After the boy's father, who was a drug dealer, was sent back to prison for a parole violation and his mother was evicted from her home. This little boy and his brother were sent to live at their uncle's literal crack house in Mount Morris. And on February twenty eighth, two thousand, the boy who because he was so young, he is not named in any articles, the boy was regularly in trouble at school um, for he had major behavioral issues. He tried to kiss his first grade classmate, Kayla Rowland. Kayla rejected him because boys are gross. So the boy went home, took one of the many guns that were lying around his uncle's house, and put it in his backpack. The next day, as his class of 22 students and their teacher looked on, the boy pulled the gun while the class was lined up to go upstairs, said to Kayla, I don't like you, and shot her. She was pronounced dead a short time later at Flint's Hurley Medical Center. The boy obviously wasn't charged because he was fucking six, but he was taken from his family. Um, The uncle did a couple of years because the gun was his, but yeah. Fucking terrible. Terrible, terrible, terrible. So worst school massacre in American history, youngest school shooter in American history, and Michigan is also home to one of the first fatal school shootings in modern American history. And that is what we're going to talk about today. But first, I'd like to take a moment to thank today's sponsor, Ana Luisa. Anna Luisa, that's A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A, designs jewelry with a beautiful story from beginning to end. They use recycled materials whenever possible to create small batches of jewelry that are kind to the earth. The result is beautiful, one-of-a-kind, long-lasting jewelry that won't break the bank, and right now you can get 10% off anything on the website using promo code SODEAD. Prices start at just $39, and that's before the 10% discount, and new jewelry collections are released every Friday. I've gotten a few pieces from Ana Luisa for myself, and I've given a few away as gifts because their jewelry is super affordable and they've really kind of got something for every occasion, every style, whether you like the classic look, um, you know, the very simple, which is kind of more my style, or the more modern, the more trendy stuff. Right now, they've got these gold plated word necklaces. So they say things like, you know, smile, hope, love. Live, laugh, love, no. (laughs) Um, Words like that. And the necklaces themselves have a very 90s vibe. The 90s, as we all know, uh, are back with a vengeance right now. So I may have to snag myself one of those to go with the literal Trapper Keeper that I bought for myself the other day. Yeah, Trapper Keepers are back too. Visit AnaLuisa.com. That's A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A.com slash so dead. To treat yourself or a loved one to something great. Use code SODEAD at checkout to save 10% off anything on the website. All right, let's get to it. Everett High School is best known as the alma mater of basketball great Irvin Magic Johnson, who graduated from the South Lansing High School in 1977, the same year that he led the Vikings to the state basketball championship. When I was a student at Everett some 20 years later, there was a display case near the gym with his jersey, one of his ginormous, ginormous shoes, um, trophies, newspaper articles, all that kind of stuff. I would imagine that it's all still there, but I have not been inside the school in years, so I'm not entirely sure. 1977 was Everett's heyday. It was an exciting place to be. Everyone knew that Magic was going places, and he did, obviously. Um, There were pep rallies, parades, award ceremonies. And in the crowd at these events sat three quiet freshmen, the son of a pipe fitter, the son of an auto worker, and the son of a prominent area attorney. Just a year later, those three boys would make headlines of their own, but the reason was nothing to celebrate. In 1978, Everett High School had a student body of 1,607, making it the largest public high school in Lansing at the time. February 22nd was a Wednesday. It was the middle of winter, so there's a 99% chance that it was a cold, gray day. At 2 o'clock, the dismissal bell rang and teenagers poured into the halls toward their lockers, eager to head home for the day. In room 212 on the second floor, an American Lit class was taught sixth hour. And there was nothing unusual about the class that day. No confrontations took place that led the teacher to be concerned about anyone's safety. But within minutes of the class being dismissed, one student was dead, one was injured, and another had inked himself into the history books as one of modern America's first school shooters. Billy Dreyer was born in 1962 to William and Marion Dreyer on Lansing's South Side, the middle child of three. He had a much older half-sister, Deanna, and a brother one year younger than him, Michael. Billy was a quiet kid, more intellectual than he was athletic. He had a slight build, red shaggy hair, and wire-rimmed glasses. He got straight A's, and he had dreams of becoming an oceanographer. He wanted to explore caves and research dolphin intelligence. His parents both worked for an auto transport company, and the family lived in a modest home on Rouse Street, not far from Everett High School. Billy's best friend, Kevin Jones, lived less than a mile away on Julia Street. The boys first met in seventh grade at Gardner Middle School, and they bonded over their love for chess. The son of a pipe fitter, Kevin, was a little older, a little bigger, and a little tougher than Billy. He had a genius-level IQ, and he was an avid reader who aspired to someday become a writer. But he didn't take his studies seriously. He often cut classes, and he hung out with the quote-unquote leather jacket crowd. It was a good thing, though, that Billy's best friend was a little more rough-and-tumble than he was, because Billy had become the target of another student's bullying. Roger Needham, who went by his middle name, Eric, was the eldest son of prominent attorney Roger Needham Sr. and his wife, Jean. When Eric was five, his parents divorced, his mother was granted custody of him and his two younger siblings after a judge found Roger guilty of extreme and repeated cruelty toward his wife. So, Not a good situation there. But just five years later when Eric was 10, his mother relinquished custody of him and his little brother and sister back to their father, and she split. She left. She moved across the country to the Pacific Northwest, um, leaving her babies alone with a cruel and abusive man. Single fathers aren't incredibly common even today, but a single father with three kids under the age of 10 was pretty much unheard of in the 1970s, so the Needhams had a very unorthodox home life. Soon after gaining sole custody of his children, Roger Needham took a job as the first full-time professor at Cooley Law School in Lansing, and he moved his family to Lansing. So as a lawyer and a law professor, as you can imagine, the Needhams had money, but to look at Eric, you would never know it. The family lived in a modest home on a dirt road, Loana Drive, on Lansing's south side. Eric wore the same clothes to school almost every day. Jeans, an army green jacket, and a dingy t-shirt. He had big, clunky 1970s glasses and shaggy, unkempt hair. So he wasn't like the big hotshot on campus that you might think the son of a successful attorney might be. He was an angry loner who was picked on relentlessly. He joined the track team, so he did that for a short time during his freshman year, um, but then he stopped doing that and there were really no other extra That's a hard word. Um, there were really no other extracurriculars that he was involved in. He sat alone at lunch where other kids often made fun of him and threw things at him. Very few people actually took the time to get to know Eric personally, but those who did said he was a nice, easygoing kid. To most of his classmates at Everett High School, though, he was just a weirdo. Now, we're going to get into some choppy waters here. We live in a world where we are much more aware of and sympathetic to bullying and the damaging effects it can have, especially on a child, a teenager. And normally that sentence wouldn't have a but at the end of it, but in this case it does. Because if there was ever a reason to treat a classmate as an outcast, it would be if that person was a fucking Nazi who idolized Adolf Hitler, which Eric Needham did. He drew pictures of atomic bombs. He had a kill list. He talked about burning down houses, blowing up the school, All things that would be taken very seriously now, but in the 1970s, not so much. It just made him weird, quote unquote weird. Um, So yes, bullying, alienating, mistreating a peer, these are all horrible things to do and I'm so glad that we've got more programs in place now and more awareness now to this issue, but at the same time, fuck Nazis, right? Um, In addition to his trademark army green jacket, Eric wore a Nazi pin to school every day. So it wasn't like a rumor, like, hey, I think that kid's a Nazi. He was an actual, like, out and proud Nazi. He wrote about Hitler in his school papers. He talked about him. He talked about Nazi beliefs whenever he actually struck up a conversation with someone. So, yeah. It, I mean, it obviously makes sense that nobody wanted to sit with him at lunch or walk home with him or invite him over for a fucking sleepover, right? He's a Nazi. But at the same time, uh, I tell a much shorter version of this story on The Demented Mentors, and I have met at least a dozen people who went to school with Eric, and they have all said that the bullying was really, really bad. So it's conflicting. You know, he he was treated horribly at school. He was this kid with an absent mom, an abusive dad, who was mercilessly bullied, but also he's a fucking Nazi. Clearly, we're heading toward a perfect storm of rage here. Eric had to take his anchor out on someone, and Billy Dreher was his target. So at school, you know, Eric, who was a victim of bullying himself, he picked on a smaller kid, which was Billy Dreher, and he bullied him pretty badly, Uh, but... Billy had that big, tough best friend, and nobody was bullying Kevin Jones. So stick with me here. If it was like a setting where Kevin wasn't around, just Eric and Billy were in a class together or in the hall together, their lockers were actually close to one another. When it was just the two of them, Eric was the bully and Billy was the victim. But when Kevin was present, he had Billy's back, and he would start the shit with Eric. So Strength in numbers, Kevin and Billy, when they were together, Eric was the target of the bullying. But when it was just Eric and Billy, Billy was the victim. Sticking with me? Does that make sense? This is too many names. I'm sorry. Anyway, the point is, it was really, you know, Kevin and Eric that kind of had the beef. Billy was a very gentle kid. He was kind. He never argued or tried to fight back. So he didn't stick up for himself when Eric bullied him, but Kevin stuck up for him. So all of this brings us back to the afternoon of February 28th. No, not February 28th, February 22nd, 1978. Billy and Eric are both 15. Kevin is 16. They all have Sixth Hour American lit together in room 212. Um, That was actually where they met. Billy and Kevin didn't know Eric prior to having that class with him. Billy's locker was near Eric's, as I said. So as the boys left their class at the end of the day and walked to their lockers, they were all kind of in the same little general area. And while Billy was getting his coat on and loading the books that he needed to complete that night's homework into his backpack, Kevin turned to Eric pointed to the Nazi pin on his jacket, and he said something like, "Um, only a punk would wear something like that. Eric shot back, you know, what are you going to do about it? Kevin, admittedly, was kind of looking for a fight that day because, again, fuck Nazis. But what happened next, he could have never imagined. School shooting wasn't really a term until the late 1990s. The school shooting epidemic started in 1997 and has somehow just become an understood and accepted risk for school-aged children now. They do lockdown drills and active shooter drills regularly, um, and we've seen the results of this sort of tragedy over and over and over. But in the 1970s, someone bringing a gun to school and shooting their classmates was unfathomable. It did happen on occasion. Uh, according to Wikipedia, the first school shooting was actually all the way back in 1840. Would that have been like a musket? I don't I don't know. Um, but school shootings, they were not an, a common thing. They were not an expected thing. They were not a feared thing. So when Eric reached into his pocket during this confrontation, Kevin expected him to pull out a knife. Very 1970s, right? A switchblade. And he told him, you don't scare me. You can bring it out anytime. What Eric brought out, though, was his father's German Luger, part of an extensive gun collection that he had. Uh, Eric took the gun. He didn't waste any time. He fired point blank at Kevin, uh, so close that the gunpowder actually stung Kevin's face. He felt the bullet rip through his hair, and it grazed his scalp and then lodged in the lockers behind him. Blood kind of began to trickle down his forehead, and he ducked just before Eric could fire again, and so the second bullet hit Billy in the jaw. Billy dropped to the ground as Kevin backed up into the lockers. Eric stood over Billy, who was bleeding profusely, and he fired a second shot directly into his head. Kevin began to run through the hallways that were crowded with kids trying to get out of the building to go home for the day. Most of them didn't hear the shot, and those that did didn't recognize it as a gunshot. One student said he thought someone had, like, dropped a stack of books on the floor. It was just kind of this loud bang, but it wasn't anything they associated with gunfire. As Kevin pushed through the crowd, trying to make his way to the office, he's screaming, he's got a gun, he'll kill you. Um, And people thought he was joking at first. But then they saw the blood pooling on the linoleum beneath Billy's body and the Nazi with the kill list sauntering down the hall, gun in hand. History teacher Sam Davis, who'd only been a teacher for a few years at that point, thought it was a prank. But as a dazed-looking Eric walked past him, he mumbled, I'm tired of being pushed around. Now I'm even. So Mr. Davis took a closer look, and he saw that Billy was not faking. He was dying on the floor of the school. So the young teacher rushed to Billy's side, and he was the first to try to render aid. Which, side note, Mr. Davis was my assistant principal in middle school, and then he later went on to be the principal at Everett. He also refereed wrestling, um, high school wrestling, for a long, long time. So for those of you who are local that are listening to the story and you're wondering if I'm talking about that Mr. Davis, yes, I am. So at this point, a lot of things started happening all at once. Kevin reached the main office. He's covered in blood at this point. He jumped over the counter and he yelled for help. School nurse Carolyn Cheadle raced up the stairs to where Mr. Davis was desperately trying to save Billy's life, and she helped him perform CPR, which they did this for about 30 minutes. As students began to realize that there really had been a shooting in their midst, they panicked, they ran, they barricaded themselves in classrooms, Football players blocked the doors to keep the shooter from getting into the rooms full of frightened students. There was a police officer at the school that day. Officer Tom Wilson was there speaking to an American history class on the first floor about organized crime. Um, So when he heard about the shooting, he raced up the stairs. He's radioing his partner because his partner's sitting out in their squad car in the parking lot with no idea what's going on. He radios his partner for backup. He runs up the stairs He starts trying to help. Blood ran down the hall at Everett High School as screams and feathers from Billy Dreyer's down jacket filled the air. And Eric Needham, the 15-year-old boy who'd caused all of this chaos, one of modern America's first school shooters, quietly walked down the hall, handed his gun, a knife, and a box of ammunition to teacher Aldo Martinez and said, Here, I give up. Billy Dreher was rushed to Ingham Medical Hospital, now called, I think, McLaren-Greenlawn Campus. I'm not sure. It's had so many names over the years, but at the time, it was still Ingham Medical, and it's only about a two-minute drive from Everett. I mean, they are right there. So he was very close to a hospital. School officials called Billy's parents. Kevin was taken to Sparrow Hospital, which is a bit further away, and he was treated for a non-life-threatening head wound. The bullet had just grazed his scalp uh, before lodging into the frame of locker number 02-069. Hysterical students fled from the building as their parents, who had come to pick them up, tried to make sense of the madness, you know, like, what's going on? They were there, it was end of school day, they were there to pick up their kids, and all of a sudden, just pure madness. Meanwhile, Eric Needham sat quietly in the principal's office as his lawyer father argued with police officers over when and where Eric would be questioned. William and Marion Dreyer didn't live far from the hospital, so they got there fairly quickly. As they sat with police and the hospital chaplain while surgeons tried in vain to save their son, Marion shared that she'd had an uneasy feeling all week long, like she knew something awful was going to happen. Neurosurgeons spent two hours trying to save 15-year-old Billy Dreyer, but his spine was shattered and his brainstem was severed. There was nothing that could be done. Doctors asked the Dreyers if they wanted to donate Billy's usable organs, to which they immediately said yes. But the prosecutor's office blocked the request. They told the Dreyers that they were worried. A defense attorney would argue that the doctors actually took Billy's life by removing his organs— That he could have been kept alive otherwise, Um, you know, there was no brain activity, but machines were keeping him alive, and it was the actual removal of the organs that would kill him, so they would not allow this to happen because they thought it might hurt uh, their case. So, life-saving measures ceased, and Billy Dreyer was pronounced dead at 4.04 p.m., two hours after he was gunned down in a hallway at Everett High School. On the other side of town, a defiant Kevin Jones was released from Sparrow Hospital after refusing to allow medical personnel to stitch or bandage the deep gash in his head. He arrived home to a house full of well-wishers but immediately retreated to his upstairs bedroom, only allowing his younger brother Tony in to keep him company. The boys convinced their mom to let them walk up to Burger King to grab dinner. As they were leaving, she promised Kevin that Billy was going to be okay. But Kevin knew better. He had seen his friend lying lifeless on the ground. He knew that the quiet boy who liked to play chess and wanted to swim with dolphins was gone. 15-year-old Eric Needham was transported to the Ingham County Jail, where both he and his father signed a consent, consent to search form, allowing police to search the Needham home and Eric's bedroom. What they found was shocking. Eric's room was full of Nazi literature and memorabilia, including a huge Nazi flag on the wall. There were manifestos. (laughs) I cannot talk today. There were manifestos, terroristic plans and blueprints, Eric's kill list. Uh, Roger Needham was, at least outwardly, as stunned as authorities about what they found. He told them that he had not been in Eric's bedroom in over a year, and had no idea that Eric had taken his father's fascination with World War II memorabilia and twisted it into something so evil. I call bullshit on that, though. The kid wore a Nazi pin to school. Everybody knew he was a Nazi. So for his dad to act surprised that his bedroom was full of Nazi shit, that's some lawyer bullshit right there. But you want to hear something super fucked? Uh, one Lansing State Journal article that I read from right after the accident described Eric as... A brilliant loner with a penchant for the mystique of militarism. Uh, no. He's a Nazi, but thanks. Among Eric's journals, they found the following excerpts, which were written just days before the shooting. One said, While I in no way forgive my enemies, I will refrain from killing them for the moment. A few days ago, I brought Dad's 38 special to school with the direct intention of murder, Luckily, it took nearly two hours for me to walk home and back to get the gun, so consequently I cooled off. But I still carry a knife. Another entry said, I almost abandoned Hitler last night, out of being pushed too far by my classmates. I almost went to school without my Nazi party pin on my jacket. But luckily again, I had a burst of courage and never again will I think about abandoning Mein Fuhrer and Nazism. As authorities searched the house of horrors that was the Needham home, an equally shocking scene was unfolding at Everett High School. The pools of blood were quickly mopped up so that, as a teacher proudly reported to the state journal the next day, swim practice could continue as scheduled and a pancake supper scheduled for 6 p.m. could go on as planned. John Mars, the spokesman for the Lansing School District at the time, said this about things returning to normal so quickly. And by quickly, I mean immediately. Extracurriculars were not canceled the day that a student was murdered inside the school and classes were held the next day. No grief counseling, no nothing. Just business as usual. Um, John Mars said, This is a first-time experience for the district and a very dramatic experience for the kids. And no. I did not just misspeak. It was not traumatic. He said dramatic. Um, But we plan to operate Everett on a regular basis. Like why? This is not regular. This is not a normal thing. Why are you so quick to get back to business as usual? Um, Anyway, they were so committed, in fact, to maintaining the status quo that they did one of the most messed up things. Okay. Listen to this shit. The shooting occurred on a Wednesday. By the end of that day, Billy Dreher was dead, Eric Needham was in jail, and Kevin Jones was at home recovering from a nasty gash on his head and hella trauma. Kevin's mom kept him home from school that Thursday and Friday, um, and then obviously it was the weekend, so she took him back to school on Monday. She went into the school with him to talk to officials you know, make sure he'd be taken care of, considering that the last time she dropped him off at school, he got shot in the fucking head. Rather than welcome Kevin back with open arms and pledge to take, you know, the best care of him, give his family the support they needed, all of the things they should have said, what they did say was that they didn't want Kevin in their school. Not because he did anything wrong, he didn't, but because they thought that his presence might be distracting and upsetting to the other students. I want to scream right now, but I know that most of you have headphones on, so I'm going to spare your eardrums. The school officials suggested that Kevin look into alternative education to finish up his GED. Stunned, Mrs. Jones took her son and left the school and that would be the last time that Kevin would ever set foot in a learning institution. He felt that alternative ed was for burnouts and losers. Remember, this kid had a genius level IQ. Um, and at the time, this was the 70s, there was no you know, school of choice, homeschooling, charter schools, none of that. It was this or nothing. So at 16 years old, just days after being shot in the head while at school, Kevin Jones became a high school dropout. Before we get into Eric Needham's fate, which is wild, I want to tell you guys about our other sponsor for today's episode, Apostrophe. Have you ever had an acne breakout at the worst possible time? I know I have. Uh, I generally have pretty clear skin, but it never fails. Anytime I've got a big event or a TV interview or something scheduled where it's important that I look my best, boom, I've got the complexion of a 13-year-old. And we've all had struggles with our skin. Um, This is why I'm excited to partner with Apostrophe, the sponsor of today's episode. Apostrophe is a prescription skincare company that offers science-backed oral and topical medications that are clinically proven to help clear acne. Apostrophe connects you with a board-certified dermatologist who will create a personalized treatment plan that is perfectly tailored to your unique skin. Simply fill out Apostrophe's online quiz about your skin goals and medical history. Then snap a few selfies and your dermatologist will create your customized treatment plan. Apostrophe treats acne and they can also help you hit your other skincare goals like reducing redness, wrinkles, and even dark spots. And today I have a special deal for SoDead listeners. Save 15% off your first visit with a board certified dermatologist at apostrophe.com slash SoDead when you use code SODead. That's S-O-D-E-A-D, no spaces in between. This code is only available to SoDead listeners. Uh, To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash SoDead and click begin visit. Then use code SoDead at sign up and you'll get $15 off your dermatology visit. That's apostrophe.com slash SoDead and use the code SoDead to get your dermatology visit and save $15. Thank you so much to Apostrophe for sponsoring SoDead today. All right. So, over at the Ingham County Prosecutor's Office, there was a debate raging about whether to charge Eric Needham as a juvenile or an adult. Unpopular opinion here. I think I've said this to you guys before. I'm not sure. But I think that it's absolutely bonkers that whether to charge someone as an adult or a juvenile is often based on the severity of the crime rather than the person's actual age. That makes no sense to me. If they're a child, they should be charged as such. Their brain is not fully developed. They're a fucking child. Anywho, prosecutors ultimately decided to charge Roger Eric Needham as a juvenile. Uh, By the time this decision was made, he'd already undergone multiple psychiatric evaluations, and it was determined that he suffered from a rare and severe mental illness that caused him to be a true paranoiac. I don't think that's the name of the mental illness, but I didn't see the actual specific name of it listed in any of the articles that I found. Um, but his his illness caused Eric to have strong feelings of superiority, while at the same time he was convinced that other people were plotting against him. So his conflicting feelings of superiority and victimization caused him to become hostile and intensely angry at everyone, which is what led him to kill. So, this was a kid that was very dangerous, but also very sick. So, prosecutors were worried that if they tried him as an adult, he would be found not guilty by reason of insanity and set free without getting the help that he needed. But, if they could get him to agree to plead guilty as a juvenile, they would have custody of him for four years until he turned 19, and they would be able to treat and possibly slash hopefully rehabilitate him. So again, I'm conflicted because here's a kid who, yeah, he was just a kid. He was 15. He had zero parental guidance, an absent mother, an abusive father, uh, horrific bullying at school, no friends, severe confirmed mental illness. Does this kid deserve a chance to be rehabilitated? But then there's the whole Nazi thing. He's a literal fucking Nazi. He murdered one child and forever altered the life of another. He showed no remorse at all. His only regret was that he didn't kill more people on his rampage. And so to that person, I say lock him up and throw away the key. It's all just very confusing to me. If this happened today, there would be no question. Uh, Eric Needham would be charged as an adult, sentenced to life. End of story. But this was the 1970s, when newspapers described Nazi enthusiasts as having a penchant for the mystique of militarism. So Eric Needham was allowed to plead no contest to first-degree murder as a juvenile. Then the real trouble started. Eric was still very angry, very hostile, very dangerous. He needed to be heavily guarded. But he was also very sick and he needed intense therapy— And back in the 1970s, there were no facilities that offered both anywhere in the country because Michigan authorities looked all over the country for a place to send him. There were either maximum security facilities that offered little to no mental health care or facilities that focused on mental health care but offered little to no security. Um, So it was, you know, either or. He couldn't have both and he needed both. So, In October of 1978, eight months after the shooting, Eric Needham was sent to Green Oaks, which is the maximum security wing of the W.J. Maxey Boys Training School near Ann Arbor. Because there was very little in the way of psychiatric care at Green Oaks, the center hired a psychiatrist from the University of Michigan to meet with Eric at the detention center several times a week. Things started out rough. Most of the staff members at Greenfields were black, and Eric was a Nazi with a superiority complex. So he was defiant, he caused trouble, and he spent a lot of time locked in his room. But then he found the library and the weight room. He started working out, he burned through all of the library's books, so employees would bring him books from their personal collections. He started taking his studies seriously, he was tutoring the other boys at the center, I mean, remember, he was evil, but he did have a genius-level IQ. So, with so many positive things to now focus his energy on, the angry, hostile, dangerous Eric began to disappear. In 1980, shortly after his 18th birthday, Eric Needham earned his GED, at which point his handlers, I don't know what to call them, um, they decided that he should be allowed to enroll in classes at the University of Michigan, Under close supervision, of course, but still, he was allowed to go to classes on a college campus while he was serving time for murder. Um, By this point, though, Eric was a model prisoner. The staff at Green Oaks tested him often. They would put him in situations where he was being bullied or provoked to see if they could elicit a violent response from him, but they were never successful. Did I just say violent or did I say violent? Whichever one I said, I meant violent, but I think you know that. Anyway, um, they were relatively certain after all of these tests that Eric Needham had had been rehabilitated to the point that he would never again violently explode and take another human life. But he also never, never expressed any remorse over the life he did take. That of a young kid who was standing in the wrong place at the wrong time who was not Eric's abusive father or one of his tormentors at school, just a classmate with good grades and big dreams. Eric didn't feel bad about killing him at all, and that's a fucking problem. Not enough of a problem to keep him locked up, though. Authorities declared Eric Needham officially rehabilitated, and they released him in 1981, just before his 19th birthday. He got an apartment in Ann Arbor, and he continued his studies at the University of Michigan. In 1984, he earned his bachelor's degree with highest distinction, and four months later, he got his master's degree in mathematics. He continued his studies, and on May 2, 1992, 29-year-old Roger Eric Needham was awarded his Ph.D. So he was now Dr. Roger Eric Needham, former Nazi and rehabilitated murderer. He held a string of teaching positions at prestigious universities, Last I was able to find, he was living in the upscale community of Hastings-on-Hudson in New York, where the average home price is almost a million dollars. Before I go on this rant here, it should be mentioned that Eric Needham never had trouble with the law again. There is no record of any accusations of violence perpetrated by him, and all of his colleagues have described him as an easygoing guy with a good sense of humor. Now, listen. Given all of these mitigating circumstances, his shitty upbringing, the lack of parental guidance, the mental illness, the bullying, was giving Eric Needham a chance at rehabilitation the right thing? Maybe. Especially since it seems like in his case, the treatment worked. Even Billy Dreyer's parents were for the rehabilitation. They wanted Eric to get help, not to be punished. They saw him as a sad, mixed-up kid just like everyone else did. But, but, where the fuck was Kevin Jones's second chance? At 16 years old, he was shot in the head and watched his best friend get murdered. For that, which was no fault of his at all, he was kicked out of school. He had a genius-level IQ just like Eric Needham did, but the state didn't hire him special tutors or pay for his counseling or make sure he got back on the right track. No, they threw all of their resources at Eric Needham and allowed Kevin to just kind of twist in the wind. No GED, no college, no career as a writer like he'd always wanted. Instead, he worked maintenance jobs and in factories. He never got married. He never had children. He never recovered from the trauma of that horrific day because he was never provided the resources to do so. Complications from juvenile diabetes took its toll on Kevin, and after losing a leg and nearly going blind, he was forced to leave his job and move back home with his mother. He died on May 25, 1999, at the age of 37. Billy Dreyer's family never recovered from their loss, although they did forgive Billy's killer. Those who knew the Dreyers were always amazed by their grace, given the shitty hand they were dealt. Um, They stayed in that same little house on Lansing's south side that Billy grew up in. William Dreyer died in 1999, and Marion passed in 2015. Most students who passed through the halls of Everett High School know nothing about its tragic history. I didn't when I was a student there, Kids walk past the plaque of Bill Dreher on a wall near the office, and they likely assume that he was, you know, some great scholar or athlete or student body president. Not that he was murdered in those very halls. And hardly anyone notices the hole that remains in the frame above locker number 02-069 on the second floor, a hole that is exactly the size of a bullet. Thank you for coming to my dead talk. My sources for today were a whole lot of newspaper.com articles, but primarily and oddly, an in depth piece written for the Tampa Bay Times in Tampa Bay Times, so Florida, a Florida newspaper, in 2001 by Susan Martin Taylor. So, not local coverage, but the most in depth thing that I found was written by a reporter on the other side of the country 23 years after the murder. It's really weird. Anyway. Now it's time for a little liquid cheese. Because we did a whole lot of talking about Everett High School today, I want to tell you about one of my best, worst, most embarrassing memories from when I was a student there. Well, no, I'm not embarrassed. It's just more of like um, an I can't believe I did that thing. And I don't know how illegal it was. I mean, truancy is illegal, right? Um, so I guess it was illegal, but it definitely got me grounded. I mentioned earlier in the episode, like back at the very beginning, that I didn't always attend my classes at Everett because I wanted to go back and visit my friends at Sexton. Well, at the time I was dating a boy that was a couple years older than me, he was a senior um, at Sexton, and there was this specific day that uh, we had made plans for me to skip school. So my mom dropped me off at school in the morning And instead of, you know, going to my locker and heading to my first hour, I just stood at the doors waiting for him to come pick me up. The bell rang. And as I'm standing there, I hear the unmistakable key jingle of a security guard. They were always jingling their keys on their belt, right? There was nowhere for me to go. Like, I Could have gone outside, but then I would have been locked outside the school. There were security guards walking around outside. I was just at the end of this staircase, and I had nowhere to go. So I had to just kind of stand there and wait for him to find me. And so he took me to in-school suspension. So this is 1996-ish. No cell phones, and even if I had one, I probably would have got it taken away from me by said security guard. But I had no way to let my boyfriend know that I was not coming, you know, that he was there to pick me up and I wasn't coming because I was in in-school suspension. So one very big difference between Everett and Sexton at the time was that at Sexton, people went to in-school suspension on purpose. Like if you weren't hadn't studied for a test, hadn't completed your homework for a certain class, you would purposely get picked up and sent to in-school suspension Because you weren't marked as absent, you still got the chance to do or turn in whatever this thing was, but then you got to sit there during the whole class and, like, work on it, work on the missing assignment, study for the test, and then the next day you got to turn it in or take the test, like, you know, nothing happened. They couldn't penalize you because you were in in in-school suspension. So, Everett, different story. They took everything from you, all your belongings, you sat in a chair, stared straight ahead, couldn't put your head down, couldn't talk, couldn't do schoolwork. You just sat and stared at the wall. And this was a black class day, which meant that classes were especially long. So I was just supposed to sit and stare at the wall for an hour and a half. Number one, I would rather die. Number two, I knew that my boyfriend was outside waiting for me. So I I went up to the desk of the in-school suspension guy probably six or seven times in about a 10-minute span, totally karen out, right? I told him I was waiting for my mom at that door. You know, I wasn't trying to leave the school. I wasn't trying to skip school. I was waiting for my mom to bring me a book that I forgot. And if I could just get to the office and call her... I could clear this all up because I didn't have time to sit in in school suspension for an hour and a half. And the first time, you know, he just shushed me and sent me back to my seat. But by like the sixth or seventh time, he was so over me. He was finally like, "Whatever. Go. Go to the office. Call your mom. I don't give a shit." So I grab my bag, I leave the door. Right as I get outside the door, I'm ready to run. I'm not calling my mom. I'm not going to the fucking office. I'm getting outside. But the in-school suspension was completely on the other side of the school from where I was supposed to be being picked up. So I get out of the room. The door is shut. I'm ready to literally start running. And then I hear that fucking key jingle again because that nerd security guard was bringing somebody else to in-school suspension. So he was going to see me and take me right back. Or there were exit doors right to my left. Complete wrong side of the school but that was my only option. So I ran out the door um, and then I had to, from the outside of this big ass high school, I had to get to the complete other side of it. To do that, I had to run past the in-school suspension room, which was wall-to-wall windows. So I literally had to army crawl past was so bad. I literally had to army crawl past the windows of the in-school suspension room um, to get past it and then get to the other side of the school. My ride was still waiting for me. I proceeded to skip school that whole entire day. I got home. By this point, my mom wasn't even like super mad. She might have even been a little impressed or just exhausted. I'm not sure. She just said, You know you're grounded, right? Like you were caught before you even left the school. You were caught and then you left anyways. So I got super grounded. I didn't get suspended somehow. I guess they figured that letting me stay home, which was what I wanted, wasn't a punishment. But yeah, super grounded for like a month. Um, I still like I think about it. I picture that. Someone had to see that. Someone had to see me army crawling past the windows of my high school that day. And I wish that there was video of it because it's probably fucking hilarious. Anyway, (laughs) so that's my story. I want you guys to tell me about like your best worst. I know that we did at one point like what's the big event from your high school. But I want to hear about like your personal big event, something really embarrassing that happened to you or just some badass kid behavior like mine, um, like the worst thing that you did in high school that you look back on now and we're like, what the fuck was wrong with me? Yeah, so I'll post in the Facebook group the liquid cheese for this episode and those are the stories I want to hear. All right, I think that is it for today. Quick reminder, I know I laid out the schedule at the beginning of this season, but, you know, who remembers anything I say? I talk way too much. Um, But we've got one more episode here at the end of July and then I'm taking the month of August off for my summer break. And by summer break, I just mean that I'm getting ready for the Festival of Oddities on September 4th. Um, So I'll be working the whole time. I just won't be writing podcast episodes. Also, I've mentioned this a few times, uh, even though self-promotion makes me cringe and it's hard for me, but my new book, The Serial Killer Chronicles, comes out on July 26th. So in just a couple of weeks, if you're in or near Michigan, come get a copy from me at Dead Time Stories and I will sign it for you. Otherwise, you can find it on Amazon. Uh, Be sure to leave a review if you get it there. It's an odd thing owning your own bookstore because like, um, so Haunted Lansing, they carry it at Target now. Like, how cool are my books at Target? But don't buy it at Target. Come buy it from me. Books on Amazon need to be sold that way to get the rankings and the reviews, which is where people look for books. You know, podcasts, people look on Apple Podcasts for the reviews and rankings. Books, they look on Amazon, unfortunately. But at the same time, like, don't buy that shit from Amazon. Come, come get it from me. I don't know. It's a weird thing, weird position to be in. Anyway, my point is that to celebrate the release of the new book, I am releasing the podcast episodes of the Serial Killer Chronicles in my So Dead feed next week. So. If you're subscribed to the podcast, which if you're listening to me right now, that means you probably are, uh, you're going to be getting a whole lot of new episodes next week. And I know that a lot of you have already listened to the Serial Killer Chronicles, but I also know that a whole lot of you have not. How do I know that? Because I have access to the download numbers. So this miniseries is eight episodes long. The first four episodes are about the Kelloggs. So those ones, they're a little true crimey, but they're much more like dark and weird history. And then the back half, the last four episodes, those are just straight up true crime, kind of like a regular So Dead episode without the swearing, which is going to be weird, I know. But the book is a bit different from the podcast. So um, there is some content in the book that wasn't included in the podcast. So you do still need both the book and the podcast. It isn't like an either or situation. Anywho, be sure to follow me on all of the socials, especially TikTok. Uh, that one is under Scream Queen Five One Seven. That's probably where I post the most these days, to be honest, because I can do everything at the same time. So the books, the bookstore, the news store, podcast stuff, just general life stuff, it kind of all gets rolled together there. New episode of So Dead is coming your way in a couple of weeks. Until then, stay safe, stay sane, and keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks. So